0: All right. welcome today, 339 of Journey Through Scripture. Today we are in Daniel chapter 11 verse 36 through the end of chapter 12, Psalm 139 and 1 John 5. Now, where we pick up in Daniel today, we saw yesterday we had this insanely uh, specific prophetic passage, right, that the level of detail that is given there um, is... Uh, there's nothing really to compare it to in terms of Old Testament prophecy. And um, today we're going to finish up that section, uh, but it's going to be a lot less blow by blow compared to what we saw yesterday. Uh, So the first paragraph here um, is essentially this king, whom we have identified as Antiochus Epiphanes IV, his incredible religious hubris. Um, So... This tells us that he will magnify himself over above uh, every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. Um, So uh, his his title Antiochus his his title and we've seen other Seleucid rulers obviously have these extremely braggadocious titles that they're given. His is uh, definitely in line with that Epiphanes. Right. This means this this for him, this meant God manifest and, um, Joyce Baldwin in her commentary on Daniel even notes the uh, progression that you can see in the coinage from this era where, um, he just becomes more and more associated with the, with the deities that, um, that are worshiped in his domain. And, um, it's probably worth noting, of course, that this is, uh, basic to all human sin in a sense, right? To magnify oneself above God. Um but um Antiochus does this in a very uh very literal way. And obviously his blasphemy against the Lord is is no exception and the way he treated the Jewish people of of Judea is extraordinarily cruel. Um he just seemed to have his sights set on making Uh, Everything very miserable for the people in Judea and a very bloodthirsty man. And uh, notice here that he will speak astonishing things against the God of gods. That is the Hebrew equivalent of the Aramaic phrase that Nebuchadnezzar used to refer to the Lord in in chapter 2, verse 47. And he will continue to prosper until his indignation is accomplished. Uh, Do you remember back in 819, we saw that uh, this period referred to as the time of the indignation, the za'am. So this is the same thing here. For what is decreed shall be done. Okay, this is part of what God is saying will happen to his people in the future days. And so this is something that is decreed he shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women um the one beloved by women here is um possibly uh, Tammuz um do, do you remember back in Ezekiel 8:14 where you have the women baking the cakes Um, and uh, Tammuz is like a a, a ritual of a a deity who was believed to have died, and kind of central to the worship of Tammuz was mourning. And it's either that, or this could be a reference to Adonis, which has a very similar, he has a very similar um, manner in which his devotees would worship him. And he shall honor the god of fortresses instead of these, uh, verse 38 says. And um, this probably is a reference to the idea that when um, someone would come in, like a military leader would come in and conquer a people, it was not uncommon for them then to go and pay homage to the gods of the city that they conquered and to offer incense or whatever to them, essentially for allowing that conqueror to um, to have victory over his people, that showing that 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 God that deity um, shows approval of what they have done. Um, and then we'll look at down to verse thirty nine. Those who acknowledge him, he shall honor. Remember, we talked about how they how he became kind of famous for dispensing gifts um, throughout his domain. He shall make them rulers over many and shall di- divide the land for a price. Now. Um, the the final chap the final paragraph here is one that generates a lot of discussion because as we've seen a lot of the descriptions of Antiochus and the whole Seleucid Empire kingdom whatever you want to call it um, uh, a lot of a lot of the details that have been given are very specific kind of right on the money whereas there are things in this paragraph it is alleged that Um, that really don't fit anything that Antiochus does. And so either this is doing the same thing and this is just straight up wrong, right? So people will, you know, criticize the accuracy of it. Or um, at least since, um, you know, throughout the history of the church, at least as early as John Chrysostom, um, uh, uh, Jerome is another figure who... um, who, whose whose interpretation in this direction is 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 very well known um uh, and and they start this at various parts in this chapter so it's not just this paragraph but we'll suggest that at some point in this chapter the description of antiochus kind of morphs into a prediction of someone who will come at the end of the age someone whom uh whom we w- might refer to as the antichrist right we've been talking about that a lot lately, kind of like a human ruler who is the embodiment of uh, spiritual evil, kind of Satan's main agent in this world, and uh, will do all kinds of terrible things. And and I do want to say that there is uh, a lot of truth to that, that there seems to be throughout the book of Daniel, kind of what we might call a typological trajectory of uh, great powers opposed to God. Right? Like with each one getting worse and worse in terms of their defiance uh, of God and their treatment of God's people. So like just going down and down. So you've got Babylon at first and then you've got Persia and then you've got the Seleucids. And then, you know, certain individuals will say that that Rome is foreseen here. I, I suggested that Rome might be in view in the Colossus statue in chapter 2. Um, and, like, if you just imagine kind of like an arrow just going diagonally down, right, um, and then it's kind of like, and who is next? So, just like it's worse and worse. So, the idea of kind of like telling God's people what to expect until God acts decisively and that rock uh, hewn by no human hand comes, destroys the kingdoms of this world, and grows into a mountain that fills the whole earth. Um, that this is what God's people are taught the 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 ages will look like and that is a very i would say apocalyptic way to view history uh, where these previous kingdoms kind of they become i I use the word typological right they become types they become prefigurements of what is to come and they kind of like load up the prophetic verbal arsenal, uh, as to how to, how to speak of these things. Um, so right, like when you get to revelation, we'll see like Rome is referred to as Babylon. Um, and, and I think also we could think of like, uh, Matthew 24, right? Where Jesus refers to the future desolation of Jerusalem as the abomination of desolation, which is something that, which is vocabulary that he picks up from Daniel. And and this isn't just this random reinterpretation, right? Like, Daniel is teaching us to think this way about the development of this concept throughout history. So I think we really very much have to keep that in mind. Um, there may also be what is called prophetic telescoping going on here. And prophetic telescoping is a little bit different than typology. And essentially what that is, is that if you think of like a collapsing telescope, like And you're just holding it collapsed, right? And it just looks like this little piece. But then you extend it outward and you see that it's these, you know, graduated, uh, gradually bigger cylinders as they go, goes further and further out. And some prophecy in the Bible is like that. Uh, Again, uh, not to harp again on Matthew 24, but right, you're reading it along and it kind of sounds like one could definitely read it that it's just like um, blow for blow, um uh well Daniel 11 is right where like this is just going to happen one after one after another one after another one after another but no then when you extend it out and you see what Jesus is actually talking about there are parts of that prophecy that are cast way into the future and so that might be like what's going on here and the reason this really gets brought into the discussion a lot In um, in this with respect to verses forty through forty-five, the last part of chapter eleven, is that um, there are allegedly a bunch of things in this paragraph that Antiochus never really did, uh, especially if you're reading it as a chronological succession, just like the earlier part of chapter eleven was a chronological succession. However. I have to say that my reading of this paragraph, I don't see those kinds of huge problems here. Um, I think if you look at this as a little bit more of a summary of his life, um, I don't. There's not a lot of stuff in here that I would say huh, that really doesn't sound like anything that could be said about Antiochus. So at the end, at the time of the end. Uh, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships, right? So we've already seen a lot of conflict with Egypt. Um, and he shall come into countries and overflow and pass through. We've certainly seen Antiochus has done a lot of that. He shall come into the glorious land. Okay, yeah, we know that. He's, he's, he's come to Israel. Um, um, and tens of thousands shall fall. But these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom, Moab, and the main part of the Ammonites. So the glorious land being Israel, right? Well, yeah, his attention is mainly on Judah. And certainly many thousands did die as a result of his evil decisions. Um, He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, uh, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. Certainly did not. He had a lot of stuff going on in Egypt. Uh, he shall become ruler of treasures of gold and silver and all the precious things of Egypt all right we've seen this with his uh the kind of the drama between Ptolemy the sixth and Ptolemy the seventh um uh and the Libyans and the cushites shall follow in his train they're not exactly sure what it's referring to um so some ambiguity um. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him. He shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. He shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. And, um, you know, so so military camp there uh, west of Jerusalem. And he shall come to his end with none to help him. Yeah, I I don't really see as much of a problem here as individual see, especially if you're not trying to read this chronologically. All right, and then we come to the final chapter of the book of Daniel, and that is chapter 12. And the scene is um, much more heavenly, right? So we've been introduced to some of these great uh, angelic beings. And so here at that time shall arise Michael. Um, whom we met in chapter 10, verse 21, and there, right, was also called something similar, the great prince who has charge over your people. And I suggested that this indicates that Michael has special jurisdiction over the people of God, uh, Israel, uh, Judah, etc., and there shall be a time of trouble such as never, uh, such as never has been since the nation, since there was a nation, till that time. Okay. Again, this idea that history will get worse and worse for the people of God, um, and and but with Michael arising to defend, um, to defend God's people, and. At that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. So here is this promise of ultimate salvation. Now, this concept of a book of life, um, we were introduced to this all the way back in Exodus 32, uh, 32 through 33, where Moses speaks about being blotted out of God's book. Um, Obviously, I think the idea is kind of figurative. Unless we are to think of God like literally having a book and like, oh, let's see, uh, what, are, what your last name starts with a B, where, let's see where you are. No, like um, I think the, the, it's the imagery that is conveyed by this. Obviously, this is picked up a bunch of times in the New Testament. Uh, Philippians 4.3, uh, a bunch of times in Revelation, Revelation 3, 5, 17, 8, 20, 20.12, and 20.15, and uh, of course, special uh, mention goes to the phrase, the Lamb's Book of Life, um, Revelation 13.18 and 21.27, uh, but yeah, so this is a promise that even though it's going to get worse and worse and worse, um, at that time, your people shall be delivered. And, um, and and then, get this, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth. Now, many here is the Hebrew word Rabim, which indeed does mean many, but in, to our ears, that often means many, but not all. However... Uh, Rabim is used frequently in the Old Testament, meaning all, not simply meaning many, you know, like a lot, but not all. No, it, it means all. Deuteronomy 7.1, Isaiah 2.2, 2, uh, 52.14, 52.15, 53.11, and 53.12. All of those are cited by Baldwin, who addresses this issue in her commentary and kind of explains the linguistic reasoning as to why uh, Rabim is used uh, here. So I think I would, I, I think we, we, it's legitimate to translate verse 2, all those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, and so here we have an idea that we have seen a few other times in the Old Testament, but probably most clearly here, and that is the idea of a future resurrection of God's people. Um, some, uh, something that Jesus alludes to a bunch of times in his teaching. For example, in Matthew twenty five forty six, in the in the um, his teaching about this sheep and the goats, as well as in John five twenty eight through twenty nine, where he says that uh, those who have done good will be raised to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Look at how similar that that sounds to this. Those who are in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and contempt. Um, and I just want to underscore these, this idea that this concept of re- of resurrection, which is the ultimate hope for the Christian, right, that we will be raised to be like Christ and we will be raised to be with God forever physically, uh, this is distinct Markedly distinct from the notion of being disembodied spirits or something like that. So physical resurrection, and then it's described in verse three: those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. Uh, here, calling uh, calling those who are you know raised to everlasting life the wise, the masculine. Um, And which is a little bit of of a weird way to uh, describe it. But if you look in verse 10, notice the the last phrase in that verse where it says, uh, it says, none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. So notice how in the parallel line there, the wicked is uh, is the antonym of the wise. So the wise are those who have learned the things that God wants them to learn and live their lives accordingly. Very and that, of course, is generally the idea of wisdom, anyway. So the the wise shall shine like the brightness of the stars above those uh, who turn many to righteousness. Okay, so not only themselves and their personal conduct, but um, but but influence in the lives of others, like stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up these words and seal the book until the time of the end. Um, many shall run to and fro, be doing a lot of things until then. Uh, But and knowledge shall increase. Right. Understanding of what this is talking about shall increase. Uh, By the way, seal the words of this book probably does not mean seal them up so no one can read them. In fact, the idea like if you think back to Jeremiah 32, nine through 15, remember when Jeremiah had to buy that that field and uh, he's he essentially like a deed is written out. Right. And uh, there are two copies of it, one of which is sealed and one of which is the open copy. And, um, there were other ways of doing this as well, like putting it inside a, putting a tablet inside a a, a clay, uh, kind of envelope, but the idea is that, um, you have you have two copies of a document one of which is sealed which is kind of like the official one but the thing is if you seal it you can't be reading it so the other one to be is to be read and if there is any doubt as to whether or not what uh, what is read in the open copy does not reflect what is on the closed copy that's when you can break the seal and check it out and look so that's uh, i think the idea here um it's it's finished we're wrapping things up daniel time to seal the book uh, then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood. So he sees these two figures. And remember, we've seen a bunch of uh, what we might call angelic beings in this extended vision uh, thus far. So uh, there, no surprise there. And he sees two of them, uh, stand, each standing on a different bank of the stream. And if you... Go all the way back to chapter 10. You might recall that he's seeing this whole thing when he's on the banks of the Tigris River. Um, So he sees these two, and then someone says, is it one of those two? Is it someone else? But to the man clothed in linen. Oh, okay, that's the man whom he saw in chapter 10, the one that, as I said, the image of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1 is patterned after. Um, So someone says to him who is above the waters of the stream, how long shall it be till the end of these wonders okay so can we get a timeline on this or something and i heard the man clothed in linen uh who's above the waters of the stream the the stream and to this he raised his right hand and his left hand towards heaven and swears by him who lives forever and what is the and and what is the answer that this man gives that it would be for a time, times, and half a time, and remember, this is the has is uh, now this kind of symbol for the time that the people of God will have to endure a period of suffering and a period of trial and tribulation, the time in the wilderness, we might say, and uh, and that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things will be finished, and Daniel. Of course, you know, (laughs) when is this stuff going to happen? And that's the answer you get. Daniel's a little bit confused. And so he says, oh, my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? And like he wants more details. This is all very enigmatic, all very interesting. But, you know, I'd like um, some more details. And he's given simply the answer. Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the end of time. In other words, this is what we want to say. If we wanted to give you more details about this, we would give you more details, but uh, this is the revelation and this is what you are to know. Um, Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined. Remember, white um, meaning like unsoiled. Uh, This is often how heavenly beings are described, Um, aside from Many others in the Bible. Uh, We might think of the Ancient of Days himself in Daniel 7, verse 9, or we might think of what we saw yesterday uh, at the end of the passage in chapter 11, verse 35, where um, some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end. That is symbolism for uh, persevering, right? Remaining pure in the face of trial and extreme temptation. Uh, to turn away from God, uh, but the wicked shall act wickedly, we're told, and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. Remember, the, the wise, the masquil, um, and uh, from, time, from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, again, there shall be 1,290 days. Once again, another way of saying time, times, and half a time right? Because that's that's three years, and three years times 360 days a year, um, plus uh, another half a year, plus 180. So, three times 360, and then add 180 onto that, and it's 1,290 days, which is a figure that Revelation also will pick up. Um, a little bit more obscure is the next phrase in verse 12, blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. And, um, that is tricky uh if you do the math here there's a f- that that's a 45 day difference between that and the other figure the 1290 um you know and if we're saying that uh the months are 30 days during this this way of uh of of seeing things of clocking things uh that's a month and a half so it might be something like Um, the time times and half a times and just wait a little bit longer. Um, I think this has really puzzled a lot of interpreters. Like, what is the exact significance of that number? And I'm not sure we could do much better than that. This idea, like, just hang on a little bit longer. And if we are frustrated with that, Um, again, I'd remind everyone of what is told to Daniel, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. And notice here that a very similar thing is said here in verse 13, but go your way till the end. So I think the idea is that this is what has been revealed. This is what you are to ponder. One day you will understand it. And then finally, Daniel closes, and you shall rest and stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. Okay, Um, hang on, focus on remaining pure, remaining true to the Lord, and be among those who purify themselves and persevere. That is your job. That is what you are to tend to. And that, folks, is the book of Daniel. Okay, let's go now to Psalm 139. Uh, so we haven't seen one of these in a little bit, but the, we have a Psalm of David here. And uh, this is a wonderful psalm in terms of just its portrait of a, a very intimate relationship with God. And intimate not so much um, in that uh, I feel close to God or or uh, I think grand thoughts about God, but that he thinks this about me, um, that that he has this intimate knowledge of me and desires to know me and does, in fact, know me even more than I know myself. So, O Yahweh, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, okay? That's a figure of speech called a merism, which we've talked about before, heavens and earth, head to toe, right? So, from when I sit down to when I rise up and everything in between is the idea. Um, You discern my thoughts from afar, from where you are, you know what i'm thinking um it's probably also worth noting here that the kind of knowledge that this psalm does contribute a lot to our understanding of um of of god's knowledge of god's knowledge of our thoughts of god's knowledge of of our lives and even his providential direction of our lives so this psalm actually contributes um, a decent amount to what we know of several of god's uh, attributes of course, we learn about these abundantly elsewhere in Scripture as well, but uh, it's worth worth noting, you know, how much this psalm kind of teaches us about God. Uh, you search out my path and my lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways. Uh, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Yahweh, you know it all together. Okay, so here we have God's knowledge of the future, particularly my future. Um, he knows all of my ways, And even before I speak, he knows what I am going to say. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Um, So God's hand on us, right? His his providential direction and even his providential protection on my life. And uh, to such an extent that, you know, we can be blown away by it, but we can't really understand it. We don't really know what it is. Uh, for for God to know us as intimately as he does. And so he says in verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. And then in verses 7 to 12, uh, there are a bunch of statements that contribute to uh, a, a lesser known attribute of God, which is his omnipresence. And this is God's access to any and everywhere that we are, any and everywhere that we might be, that we cannot hide from God, That, um, which, of course, can sound kind of like scary, right? Like, I've got no privacy. I've got no part of my life that I can sh- shroud from God. You know, you could view it in a very negative way. But I think, too, it's important for us to be able to view this in a very positive way as well, that no matter what's going on in my life, no matter what situation I am in, God is—that's not an obstacle for him. He is just as close to me when I am in the depths of despair or if I'm completely lost in my sin. um, God is there. And look at look at how he he phrases it in verse seven. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? Um, notice also how this uh, really does inform this difficulty that we sometimes experience with our faith, where people will feel like I feel like I don't sense God's presence, or I feel I don't feel like He's with me. And what I want to say, I want to say a lot of things to that. Right when somebody says something like that to me, but. I think first and foremost, the thing that I try to keep in mind when I feel that way, um, and I try to encourage other people to to understand when they feel that way, is that how whether or not I feel close to God or whether or not I feel His presence or that He is near, um, He is, uh, and so if I feel distant from God, that's got more to do with my psychological state of mind than it does with him actually being distant or him actually not being here, right? No, God is here. He is with you at all times. And I don't really have a promise that I'm aware of in scripture where it says that I'm always going to sense that, what I do have in Scripture are, are statements like these, the this assurance that he is. And so the question is, am I going to uh, trust my feelings of distance from God, um, my feelings of being abandoned by him or him not being exciting to me for some reason? Am I going to trust my feelings or am I going to trust the promises of Scripture, what Scripture tells me about God being with me? uh, and look how he says it. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. This is, again, is another merism, right? The heavens are as high as you can go. Sheol or the grave is as low as you can go. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, so I get on a sailboat and sail sail far off onto the Mediterranean Sea. Um, He even there you shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. Uh, Someone needs to tell Jonah about this, right? Um, If I say, Surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. So, even though when I can't see, physically right when it's night and uh and i and i'm tripping on stuff like that does not obscure god's ability to quote unquote see you to be aware of you to have this kind of intimate knowledge of you um and then in verse 13 uh, verses 13 through 16 uh this knowledge is extended to before you are even born okay so god's intimate knowledge of you before you're even born for you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Now I have two things to mention about this. So this, this passage, so of course we get what this means. As I said, God's intimate, uh, personal relational knowledge of us even before we're born. And, um, this obviously figures a lot lately, you know, over the last couple decades uh, into the, the 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 abortion debate, okay, and the question of when does life begin, and people will appeal to this passage uh, for the idea that life does begin at conception. Now, uh, I don't want to, I don't want anybody to misunderstand what I'm saying. I do maintain that life begins at conception. There's obviously a lot more that can be said about that, but I think it's also important to note that passages like this do not give sufficient warrant for that belief specifically. Okay, the because uh, what do we mean by life begins at, sub, at conception? Well, when when a sperm meets an egg and the sperm fertilizes the egg, there is a genetically distinct human life. Okay. That is not what this passage teaches. What this passage teaches is that that as I am formed in my mother's womb, um, God is doing that, and certainly that is part of it. But when that begins, um, this verse doesn't explicitly tell us that, right? All again, all it says is that as I'm being formed, you're forming my inward parts. You're knitting me together in my mother's womb. And that is something that you're doing. But what it does not do is it does not tell me when that process starts. My our knowledge about when that process starts comes to us through our scientific understanding. And I think this is helpful, right? Because Obviously, the abortion debate can be extremely contentious. And I think because of our obligation um, as as believers, as people of God, to defend the rights of the weak and the powerless, that we absolutely have an obligation to speak about this honestly and to do what we can um, to see that this practice is uh, happens as rarely as possible. Um, whether that's through legal means or through um, uh, through, through ministering to, to women who feel hopeless or helpless, um, those are all parts of this. Um, I think also cultivating a, uh, um, a culture of adoption within the church, right? Where if somebody is not able to care for their biological child, we will do it because we care about life and we care about everybody made in the image of God. However our position is often characterized as us trying to impose our faith on other people that we've got this idea from the bible that life begins at conception which is especially relevant to early term abortions again there's a lot of nuances in this conversation i'm kind of painting with a broad brush but you know the the idea that it's because of our faith that we affirm that point point of it that specific part the idea that life begins at conception and I would respond to that, that no, that's actually a scientific insight. That is something that we know through our understanding of how human development happens. What scripture does, scriptures like this, and you know, I would also go to Exodus 21, 22 through 25, which shows that the, the, the rights of an unborn child are equivalent to the rights of um, somebody who, like a full-grown adult, right? What the scripture does is it shows us, That when that life is present, it has value value to us as a society, value to us as individuals, and value to God. And I think it's important to realize where different components of the case for life come from to, number one, not give the impression that we as Christians are seeking to impose our religious beliefs on other people thus putting an additional stumble, stumbling block between people and the public witness of the gospel in our culture, and number two, to actually make the arguments in favor of life uh, more compelling to those who do not share our view of biblical revelation, right? That you don't need to accept the premise that the Bible is true in all that it teaches in order to understand that when we are talking about an unborn child, even right after that child is conceived, that we are talking about a human life that has value. The other thing that I want to say about about this is that I do think that this informs our view of science and religion, and here is what I mean by that. So, we understand through modern science a whole lot about the process of a child's development in the womb, from conception all the way through birth. We could give an accounting as to what is going on uh, chemically and biologically, in terms of cells splitting, in in terms of what organs are being developed and how they are developed and what role genetics plays and all all this stuff, right? Um, We have a very, I don't want to say we understand everything about it, but we have a very thorough understanding of that process. And yet, that does not mean that it is not true what the psalm says here, that you knit me together in my mother's womb. I think this is a very clear example of how science and religion do not need to be mutually exclusive. Like, if we understand how a child develops in its mother's womb, then we have no more need for statements about God, as if you can either believe uh, one or believe the other. No, they're they're both different ways of speaking about it. I've heard John Lennox, who is very good on this sort of stuff, st- say that you know being able to explain the mechanics of a Model T and maybe the factory that built it, right, does not mean Henry Ford is not also an explanation for it. So I think that's a, that's an important thing in our contemporary discourse because. Uh, science is often portrayed as like the more we understand scientifically about the world, the less need for God we have. Um, And I just think that that's a wrong way to think about it, that science informs us what the world that God created is like um, and how it works. Um, And God is just as relevant as an explanation as he's always been. And it's only really a problem if you think the only purpose for believing in God is is that we don't have some kind of scientific explanation for whatever phenomena you're looking at, but there's just no reason to think of it like that. Okay. So now that I'm done with my little soapbox there, um, We'll hop back into the text here. So, my frame was not hidden from you. Again, this idea that God just knows us intimately, even from when we were in the the womb, when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Notice the figurative language there. Um, Of course, the psalmist knows that we don't originate in the depths of the earth. Um, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. And so there we have a reference again to the book, right? And that I think, however, is different than the one that we just saw in Daniel uh, chapter 12. Um, You've got obviously the same kind of imagery there, but there the book is like a role of those who actually know the Lord, right? Those who are actually God's people. Whereas here it actually seems to be imagery for God's a sovereign providential plan for each of our lives, right? That because what is it that's written? The uh, the days that are formed for us. So again, talking about this contributing to the what this psalm contributes to our doctrine of God and our understanding of Him. Um, I think that this speaks very strongly to His. Uh, uh, to his decree for our lives, to his to his his sovereign providence in in bringing about all that comes to pass in our days in our lives, and then notice how in verse seventeen you have a shift. Now instead of musing on you know, God's omnipresence and his intimate knowledge of us. It's basically how this impacts the heart of the psalmist. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God? How vast is the sum of them? So it's almost as if, like, God has been said to know all of our thoughts and all of our days, and now the psalmist is almost trying to return the favor, right? Like, um, And he is pondering now on God's thoughts, but in so doing... Um, comes to this very quick realization how vast is the sum of them if I could count them they are more than the grains of the sand like that's how hopeless it is trying to really understand uh, the thoughts of God the mind of God what we know is what he's revealed to us and that is enough to keep us busy our whole lives as I think we're abundantly learning in our journey through scripture together Um, and I awake and I'm still with you. So, which is a pleasant thought, right? That the presence of God, which is, can be this very terrifying thing. Uh, again, like if, if he's got access to my life, like there's nowhere that I can hide. Right. And, and it feels intrusive, but no, it's actually, um, a, a, a a precious thought, right? I awake and I realize I'm still with God. God is still right here. I know like one of my favorite things to do is to, as I'm trying to go to sleep at night and, you know, you're trying to quiet down your mind to just let your mind rest on truths about God, on the fact that you're loved by him and and kind of going to sleep with that on your mind and, and praying that when you awake, you would have this awareness of his presence and his love and goodness to you as well. All right, then down to uh, verse 19, we find a significant turn, and that is a turn towards an acknowledgement that he's got, uh, that all this is true, and I have this kind of relationship with you, God, but there are some who are seeking to do me serious harm. So, oh, that you would slay the wicked, oh God, oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. So they're not only against me, but because I am the Lord's, they're against him as well. Your enemies take your name in vain, the ESV translates it, which is a bit of a tricky phrase. Um, there is no word for your name there in the Hebrew, so that's a little bit of an interpreted, uh, interpretive assumption. Um, the phrase is Nasu Lashave Areka. Now, The, 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 the expression Nasa Lashava is, is what we find in the 10 commandments, right? Lift up God's name to falsehood. You shall not, you know, take the Lord's name in vain is how it's typically translated. Um, but, um, as I, and so that's obviously where the idea of inserting the concept name in, you know, your name in this is, making this, you know, basically they violate this commandment. Uh, but um, I would just point out that there's not actually a necessity to import that concept here um, because you you have the concept used differently uh, elsewhere. So like in Psalm 24, 4, notice this, he who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. So the idea of lifting something up to falsehood is not only something we could do with God's name and thus violating the commandment, but also this idea that like, we give ourselves to what is false. And so, um, you know, again, note that the at least the way that it is pointed in the Hebrew, the way that the Masoretes are interpreting this, the word to lift here is in the passive stem, it's in the pu'al stem. And so the idea is that the subject of that verb is your enemies, um, which, by the way, is an, is an Aramaic. A word for enemies it's very uncommon in the hebrew but we also find it in first samuel twenty-eight sixteen. so the idea would be your your enemies are lifted towards falsehood so that's how i think that that line should probably be translated rather than your enemies take your name in vain uh with the idea here you know that one can lift their soul up to falsehood their nefesh their person and this is what is true of god's enemies i think that's the way to understand that second line of verse 20. Uh, Do I not hate those who hate you, O Yahweh? And here we have, we're like, it's kind of like that psalm the other day, right? Where it's like, um, may someone, you know, take their little ones and cast them on the rocks. Where it's like this beautiful psalm. And then it gets like pretty aggressive towards those who are um, against, um, uh, who are our adversaries. And here you kind of have a little bit of the dynamic. Of course, it's not as extreme there. But there is the idea that, that because um, the psalmist counts himself so much on God's side that he realizes that is true if we are to speak of enemies in life, right, and we are to love our enemies, um, uh, that if, if we are to speak of enemies in life, our true enemies are those who are enemies of God. Now, the attitude of hatred towards them uh, seems quite strong of course again especially in light of jesus's command to love our enemies and so you know perhaps what we're seeing here is the kind of thing that we saw the other day where it is the psalmist's emotions kind of breaking through although i will note uh, as we often do in some of these like texts that speak of hatred right like you've got to hate your father and your mother or jacob i love esau i hated um the concept of hate uh, seems in in the bible to do with the way one's actions are to somebody or um you know or perhaps speaking of like relative preference relative um affection it doesn't necessarily have all of the connotations that hatred in english has and so even the expression i hate them with complete hatred i count them as my enemies you know i think that that's essentially those are synonymous lines right there right so to regard someone as not on your side, to regard someone as an adversary to you, is more of the idea here than actually having this, you know, deep emotional hatred towards someone. Like you, you, you want them to go to hell or something like that. Um, rather, it's more like you're seeking to align your thoughts with God, and you're you're seeking to be on God's side, and realizing that those who are opposed to Him are also opposed to you because you are in Him. You are in him. And then there is, of course, many different attitudes that the scripture calls for towards such people, such as to pray for them, such as to win them without a word. Think like First Peter, for example. Um, so there's obviously more that can be said about that. Finally, at the end of this psalm, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me. So given this access that you have to my mind, my thoughts, wherever you go, I want you to take that and lead me in the way everlasting. Uh, Take what you have to work with and make me into whom you want me to be, the one who is on the path to um, that, that lasts forever, that is enduring, that is the eternal life that Daniel 12 spoke of, of those who will be raised. Okay, let's go now finally to 1 John chapter 5. We're not only finished Daniel today, we're finishing up 1 John. So, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God now uh, this is um, very much in line with uh, the um, that's that purpose statement that we have in John's gospel remember John 20:31 these things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God um, and so the same idea here um, the the centrality of confession uh, what we confess what we believe. And this is part of the portrait in First John that we have of what a true um, child of God looks like, right? Remember, we said that it's it's the, the the double-sided coin, the one who 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 confesses Jesus, who believes He is, who He says He is, whom whom the Word of God says He is, and that overflowing into love for God and love for others, and so. Again, here you have that coupled. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, which, by the way, is what the liar denies in chapter two, verse twenty-two, which talks about the spirit of the antichrist. And um, you've got it coupled. You believe that Jesus is the Christ, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. Notice that trifecta there. The first of all, the belief, the confession, and then the love, and that love cannot be directed to God without being directed to others, and it cannot truly be directed towards others without directed towards God. Okay, that is what a, a full uh, a, a full relationship with the Lord looks like um, in the theology of 1 John. Uh, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments, right? Because that's what produces love for the children of God. Um, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments, by the way, are not burdensome, even though they can sometimes feel that way. I think our, our the, the heart attitude that I want to have is not that I have to keep God's commands, but that I get to keep God's commandments, um, for every, and, and, and not only because of this relationship that I now have with the law of God, which is positive and not negative, but also because, um, I am born of God. So I have that genetic relationship that John has spoken of so much. And if that's true of me, then I've overcome the world. So it's not burdensome then to live like I've overcome the world, right? Remember he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Um, and this is the victory that's overcome the world, our faith. And so that should be something that is exciting towards you and renders God's commandments, a joy to keep rather than a burden. Um, and it is the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God, who in fact does overcome the world. Um, and then, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by water but only, but by the water and the blood. Now, what he means by this is a little bit obscure. Um, some uh, you know, some might point to the water and the blood that came from Jesus' side. However, I think that... Um, uh, I prefer to see this as a reference to his baptism, his, right, the water, and his death. So it's essentially a bracketing of his entire life and ministry. Um, he, he, he begins his ministry by being um, anointed with the Spirit at his baptism, and he completes his ministry through shedding his blood and being raised. And that is how Jesus came. And then he says that the the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is truth. And that is, in, in fact, what Jesus also says will be the job of the Spirit in John 15, 26, right? That he will testify about me. He will bear witness about me. So you've got these things that bear witness, the water and the blood. So that's two things which symbolize Jesus's earthly ministry, again, the way in which he came. And now the Spirit ministering to us and those testify about the, the truthfulness of Jesus and, and 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 all that we need to know about him right And so these three then, have this cumulative testimony and here he probably has in mind i think it's fair to say the, the requirement of two or three witnesses that you see in Deuteronomy 17:6 and 19:15 which is upheld in the new testament in the, in the teachings of Jesus Matthew 18:16 John 5:31 through 32 Paul as well in 2 Corinthians 13:1 and in 1 Timothy 5:19 right maintain this standard of two or three um, witnesses to a, a, a certain thing, and and then you get uh, the, the three that testified: the spirit, the water, and the blood. And these things, these three things, agree. Now, here you have actually an interesting textual issue, and in this verse, in in, in some versions of John five seven through eight, um, you have what is called the comma johannium and this is a classic a textual variant, which actually. Uh, where actually these verses read that uh, they they add the idea that three testify, and then it adds, In heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one, and there are three that bear witness on earth. And then you have the water, the blood, and the Spirit. So, um, obviously, if this variant is correct, then you have probably the strongest Trinitarian statement in the New Testament. However, uh, it is almost certainly not original to John, and I just say this because some older translations, like the King James Version and the New King James Version, will include this in there because they are based on late, much later manuscripts that actually contain this. So, and some of them contain it actually as a marginal note, not as part of the actual epistle of John. Um, but the 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 manuscripts that contain it. Uh, One is from the 10th century, you've got one from the 12th century, two from the 14th, uh, one from the 15th, one from the 16th, one from the 18th century, and one from I'm not sure when, but... as you can see, those are extraordinarily late manuscripts of the New Testament. Moreover, this this uh, textual variant is worded differently among them. And again, four of them have it as a marginal note. That is a note that's written in the margin. Additionally, um, you know, if you know anything about some of the debates in the early church, you know that issues like the deity of Christ and the Trinity were very central to those. None of the early church fathers makes use of this text, and this would have been a drop down, uh, like a a knockdown text for them to be able to use. So that is pretty strong evidence as well that it was not known until a much later date. So, what seems to have happened was that um, when Erasmus, who's a you know a medieval uh, Catholic theologian, who uh, was one of the first guys to make a printed New Testament, which ended up being the New Testament that the King James version is based off, or, off of. It's called the Textus Receptus. So he publishes this, and it's actually not originally included in the Textus Receptus in 1516, uh, but then receives a lot of blowback from some of his Catholic superiors. Um, who essentially force him to include it. Um, so using a manuscript from 1520 called Codex um as his basis, he includes it in his third edi- uh, edition of the Textus Receptus in 1522. So um, yeah, th- there's almost... There's there's almost no way that this is act that that is actually original to First John, and I think it's important to acknowledge that. Um, and again, probably wouldn't even notice it if you're not using a King James version or a New King James version. Not to say that those are horrible in all respects. In fact, I do often regard their translations very highly. But one of the big inferiorities of those versions is that they are based on much later manuscripts. Than the uh, more recent translations of the Bible tend to be. Um, so okay, so you've got these this testimony right um, the the water the blood and the spirit, and um, and you know you receive the testimony of men. He says in verse nine. Well, guess what? The testimony of God is greater, and this is the testimony He's born concerning His Son. That whoever believes the, in the Son of God. Has that testimony in himself? It is transformative. But whoever does not believe God has made God a liar. Right here is God testifying to you in three ways about Jesus, and you are denying it because you 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 are not believing in the testimony God has borne concerning His Son. And again, here is the testimony. And here you have one of the clearest explanations of the gospel that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his Son. And so therefore, whoever has the Son has life and whoever does not have the Son does not have life that in my opinion belongs right up there with the other very strong exclusive exclusivity of Jesus passages like John 14:6 no one comes to the Father except through me Acts 4:12 there's no other name under heaven by which we might be saved okay uh, then he goes on I write these things to you that you uh, to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So, John's purpose here is to give assurance, right? Here's how you know you know God. And this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything, and note, according to his will, not my will but yours be done, right? That the person who truly knows God prays according to God's will. And if you are praying according to God's will, you have the assurance. He hears us, and whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Then you have a little bit of a tricky statement here in verses 16 and 17. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who do not commit sins, to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Now, this obviously is another one of these, hard passages, um, but I think that uh, once we really grasp his wording here, it becomes pretty clear what John means by this. So, um, given what he said in this letter, right, um, that Christians, it is expected that Christians will confess their sins uh, and will be forgiven, right? That is our number one priority when we see either ourselves or our brothers and sisters in sin, to pray for them, right? And, that and what kind of death does sin cause? Well, death it causes ultimate eternal death. Okay, and and sins that believers commit that they are uh, that they can receive forgiveness for through confession, right? Through repentance, um, that is that is the sin that doesn't lead to death. Okay, it's it's the sin that Christ has gone to the cross for. So you know, it's it kind of it depends on what you do with that sin. Do you bring it to Christ or don't you? Or don't you? And God will give him life. And again, the life here, the life that John speaks of in his gospel, is eternal life. Okay. Um, to, and that is to those who commit a sin sin that did not lead to death right in the christian life your sin does not lead to eternal um separation from god because that sin is paid for by the propitiatory blood of jesus there is however a sin that does lead to death and what is that sin sin that e- that that uh either false believers commit right that like uh that the the kind of people who perhaps like say they have faith but don't truly and their works make that very clear, um, that the sinful life that they that they do live, um, you know, because they are not accepting the truths that I am am writing to you about. Those are the kinds of sins that lead to death, basically the kinds of sins that unbelievers commit. Now, he says, I do not say that one should pray for that. Now, I, I don't think that that means, then, that we shouldn't pray for certain sins, okay? Okay. Um, I think the wording here is very critical, and here is, um, I've been very helped by Robert Yarborough's commentary on um, the Johannine epistles, and here's how he translates this, which I think really makes it clear. Making request in prayer for those committing that sin is not something I'm saying to do, and with the idea being that, um, not that you should never pray for that, but that um, that's not the kind of sin I'm talking about here. I'm talking about sin committed within the believing community that you are confessing to God and you're bringing before Him. I'm, not, I'm simply not talking about that right now. So, almost you could say, um, I, I am not talking about praying for that kind of sin right now. Although, you know, there is obviously time and place to pray for those kinds of things. The thing I'm focusing on is sin that believers commit. And in your battle of sin, not only do you have confession, not only do you have prayer for your sin, um, uh, which was just mentioned, right? But we also have the hope of perseverance and growth in holiness, which is why, as he said earlier in the letter, uh, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but and, and why? And we've got a bunch of reasons why, right? Like the Spirit's work in our lives, the regenerative, regenerative work that we have by being born of God. Um, and here, he who was born of God, which is a reference to Christ, protects him. So we our assurance in, uh, in our growth in holiness is that Jesus Christ is our advocate and he protects us, that the evil one does not touch us. And finally, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So, whose side are you going to be on? Are you going to listen to what I'm telling to you or are you going to forsake it? And finally, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true and eternal life little children then, right? Because you've come to worship what is true, the true God. Keep yourselves from idols. Okay. Thanks for being with me. As always, I thank you for that. And as always, I look forward to being with you again tomorrow. And until then, keep reading scripture, take care, and bye-bye.